Thank you once again for joining us this morning as we begin this most holy of weeks, as we work our way through this week uh, to culminate at Easter next weekend when we celebrate the death and the resurrection of our Saviour. Uh, and I suppose we, we often think that Christmas and we often talk about Christmas being the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I love Christmas and certainly the birth of the Messiah is to be celebrated. Of course it is. But when we consider the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrate at Easter time at this time of year, then in doing so, we see the culmination of God's salvation plan. Yes, Easter couldn't have happened without Christmas. Jesus had to be born in order to die. But Easter is the reason for Christmas. Jesus was born in order to die and to rise again. This is the salvation plan that is fully realized as we celebrate Easter. And so Christ died to save sinners from their sin. This is the good news. Uh, and this is why I think actually Easter is indeed the most wonderful time of the year. And of course, for, for those of us who know the good news of Jesus, the good news of Easter, uh, we have surrendered our lives to him. We don't just celebrate uh, that wonderful reality in the, at this time of year. It is a daily existence that we live in, that we recognize the salvation that Jesus has won for us. However, it is helpful for us to intentionally focus our hearts and our minds again on this history shaping uh, story, this, this life changing week in the life of Jesus and the impact that it has had on so many throughout the centuries. Uh, and so today we're celebrating Palm Sunday, the day that's recorded for us in all four gospel accounts as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Uh, and this morning we're going to focus on Mark's recording of that account and think a little of the of the days leading up to Palm Sunday and the days that follow. And so let's read Mark chapter 11, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn with me there. It will appear on the screen. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, then please do let us know. We'd love to get one to you so that you can follow along and read that for yourself. Uh, So let's read the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt there, tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied to a doorway. As they untied it, the people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And we thank God for his word to us this morning and pray that he would bless our meditations on it. And so this is the account of Jesus entering Jerusalem. But this wasn't like any other time that he and his followers had entered Jerusalem before. Uh, There's clearly a, a decisive focus in Jesus here. He knew the significance of what lay before him. And he also knew that this entrance was significant. Now, this wasn't just another group of people heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. This wasn't just another trip to the big city for him and his followers. 
This entrance to Jerusalem this time was symbolic. It had to be done in a particular way in order to fulfill centuries-old prophecy. But even in doing that, even in fulfilling the prophecy, that in itself wasn't the main purpose. The main purpose in fulfilling the prophecy was to show that Jesus was the one who was being prophesied about. And that prophecy we read in Zechariah chapter 9, uh, we referred to it last year as we celebrated this wonderful day. But have a look at this video and see how it explains the significance of that prophecy and indeed then how Jesus' entry into Jerusalem caused a variety of reactions on that day. The Bible says that as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, he sent two of them to get a donkey and her colt. This fulfilled the prophecy in Zechariah. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus mounted the donkey and rode into Jerusalem. Many laid their cloaks on the road before him and brought palm branches to wave and celebrate. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David. But not all who were there understood him. Some called him only a prophet, believing him wise but denying his divinity. Some raged and cheered for a revolution, hoping he would liberate them from their oppressors. To others, he was nothing more than an interruption. Even as children ran to him and shouted for joy, his enemies wove through the crowd, watching, seething, plotting. The range of reactions was great and wide. Celebration, worship, revolutions, deception, cynicism, condemnation, boredom, disinterest. But every single person had to confront one thing, who he was. Behold, your king is coming to you. Every single person had to confront one thing, who he was. Behold, your king is coming to you. And this morning, that is still true. Everyone who's with us here must recognize who Jesus was and indeed who he continues to be as our risen Savior. See, Palm Sunday is not just about Jesus entering Jerusalem. It's really a picture of his true identity. See, in fulfilling the prophecy from Zechariah, Jesus showed that he was indeed the promised king who was to come. But but there seemed to be some misunderstanding about what that king would do and the kingdom that that king would bring. I mean, just think of what we may consider and characteristics we may attribute to a king. We may think of a king as being powerful, influential, revered, political, commanding, maybe. And now it's not that these terms don't and couldn't be said of Jesus, but the way that Jesus embodies them might be different than how we expect. So powerful, yes, Jesus is sovereignly and eternally powerful, but, but not powerful in the sense of a military strength. Influential, yes, 
He has caused a big following. In fact, Jesus changed the course of world history. But that doesn't mean he, he is or always was popular. Revered? Well, yes, by those of us who believe and follow him, he is revered. But Jesus is often the, the subject of mocking, of scorn, of abuse. Political? Well, yes, he, he ushered in a new way of life for those who believe and follow him. But Jesus didn't come to, to win elections or to hold public office. Commanding? Yes. In fact, he commands complete submission from anyone who would follow him. But not in a, not in a domineering way or a heavy handed way. Jesus is gentle and kind in his commanding. You see, Jesus is a very different kind of king than many were expecting. But that doesn't in any way take away from the reality that he was the king who was promised. And indeed, he still is today. Remember, we read in Zechariah as the the ESV translates it, Behold, your king is coming to you. And how does that king come? He comes humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus is king. Yes, and absolutely. And today I want us to appreciate and celebrate the reality that Jesus is the humble king. He is the humble king. You may well have heard, you may well have thought before that this idea of humility, it doesn't always get a good rap. It isn't always something that's celebrated. Now, often it is when someone is humble in victory or indeed in defeat, it's often viewed as a good thing, a good characteristic. Or maybe someone in a position of power or authority acts in a way that supports those who are seemingly beneath them in terms of position. And so they're considered humble and and that's positive. But there's also a side to humility that I think gets wrongly associated with weakness. It, It happens too with characteristics like gentle and lowly and kind. In fact, just a quick search of it in a thesaurus of humble. It brings up words like self-effacing, submissive, unassuming, unassertive. They don't always strike me as positive characteristics, although they can be. And therefore, I think that it's possible that we can misunderstand this concept as Jesus, as our humble king. But actually, if we take a wider view of the chapters that lead up to what we read in Mark 11, we can see that Jesus has been building on this idea of humility. He's been building on it for quite a while with his disciples. It's clearly something that's not only important to him, but it's something he's trying to stress to his followers that this needs to be a characteristic that they embody too. If you have your Bible with you, uh, just glance back or maybe scroll back, uh, even as far back as the end of chapter 8. And there we see, uh, in verse 27, we see Peter declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. Which then leads Jesus to go on to explain his death, how he must suffer, how he must die and be raised to life again. The disciples don't quite understand. Uh, And so Jesus explains that for anyone to be his disciple, in verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So to be a follower of Jesus means to be humble, to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. At the end of chapter 9 we see this again. Jesus predicts his death a second time and then emphasizes in verses 31 and 32 what that's going to be, what that's going to look like. It's going to be a humiliating death. The son of man, he says in verse 31, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise again. But they, that's the disciples, they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. 
See, they didn't understand, the, the disciples didn't understand and couldn't comprehend that Jesus would suffer, that he would be delivered and handed over to the leaders of the day and would suffer and die. And they didn't understand, they didn't grasp it to the extent that from this point on, they, they argue about who's going to be the greatest. To the extent that in verse 35, Jesus needs to interject and says, anyone who wants to first, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus is again hammering home, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be first in my kingdom, then you've got to be a servant, you've got to be least. Continuing on into chapter 10, we see Jesus continuing to teach and also to demonstrate what humility is really all about. Verses 13 to 16, we see people trying to bring their children to Jesus for him to lay their hands on him. The disciples try to rebuke them and send them away and Jesus is indignant, we're told. And in verse 15, he says, truly, I tell you, anyone who anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So to enter God's kingdom, Jesus said, you have to humbly believe. Now, I think this is sometimes misunderstood as as being a kind of blind faith like a child would have. But but it's it's not. I don't think it's, it's more of a complete expression of, of total trust. I, I've seen this I play with our little man. That he completely believes and accepts anything that we tell him. Now that means that as parents we have to be careful what we say. Um, but Sam knows that he will uh, be able to believe what we say. Why would he not? Uh, he knows that we love him. He knows that we want what's best for him. Uh, we want him to, to know that level of acceptance. And so he's happy to humbly accept what we give him. Now how much more then? When we would consider our Heavenly Father who is completely faultless, who is all-knowing, then we can simply and innocently trust in His ways because we know His unending love, His unending care for us. And we know that His plans are better than ours. And so we can receive like a child. Now I'm not saying that it's always easy to do that. But what Jesus is showing us here is that we can do that. And we can do that because we can humbly come before our God because of who He is not because of who we are. So we can humbly come before God because we know that he is the best. His plans are good. He is all loving and all caring. But but moving on through chapter 10, we see in verse 17 through to 31, we see the rich young man coming to Jesus and asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus explains that it's not about adherence to a set of rules, um, but it's actually about a humble heart that is willing to give everything for Jesus. He's not saying that the rules don't matter, but he's saying that the obedience to the rules comes out of a humble heart. Jesus again talks about it's denying self. It's picking up your cross and following. He tells the young man to go and sell everything you have and then come and follow him. It's really a question of his heart, not his riches. See, the man, young man leaves, and we read in verse 22, he leaves Jesus sad because he had great wealth. The implication being that he wasn't willing to give up all he had to follow Jesus. He wasn't willing to humbly reject the pleasures and the desires of this world in order to inherit the treasures of heaven, which is the question he came to ask in the first place. And so it's again a lesson in humility. And Jesus ends first in uh, that section of verse 31. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. See, clearly the, the heavenly kingdom, this the, the heavenly priorities are completely different to those that we know. The measures of success, if you want to call it that, are very different in the kingdom of God. 
Jesus goes on in chapter 10 to predict his death again, showing that he would be humbled in his death. He'd be humbled to death. But again, the disciples don't seem to fully grasp it. And to the extent that again, James and John then ask Jesus if they can have the prominent seats in his kingdom, if one of them can sit on his right and the other on his left. Uh, the rest of the disciples hear about this and it all seems to get a bit flustered. It seems this question of status and authority is a big one for these disciples. But Jesus responds in a gracious, uh, but but in a cutting way. He, he shows again that God's kingdom works on different set of principles than earthly ones. He talks about service is what's important, not status. And so as we see uh, in verse 45, he finishes um, by saying that for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom of many. See, whoever wants to become great among you, he said in verse 43, must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And that is then what Jesus embodies, because he himself did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom. From here, then, chapter 10 ends with Jesus and his disciples going to Jericho. And as they're leaving that city, a blind man called Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus from among the crowd. The crowd tried to silence him. I mean, why would Jesus be bothered with this outcast, this this outsider? But no, verse 49, we read the very simple words, Jesus stopped. Bartimaeus cried, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped. Jesus had time for the outcast. In fact, it seems he spent most of his time with those that other people had rejected. He heals Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus then joins the crowd who are following Jesus. And the implication, we're not told it explicitly, but the implication is that this is the crowd who follow Jesus all the way to Jerusalem. So Jesus has been building on this idea, this concept of humility, not just teaching it, but showing it. And then they approach Jerusalem and he sends two of his followers to get the donkey. Humility, service, lowliness, gentleness, sacrifice, submission. These are the characteristics that Jesus is seeking to instill in his followers. But these are not signs of weakness. Because for those who who carry these characteristics, Jesus says it is these who will inherit the kingdom of God. They are welcomed into that kingdom. They follow Jesus closely. They're touched by him. They're transformed for him. You see, their humility, the humility of those who follow Jesus, is really their strength. Because Jesus then lives in them. And how we see that embodied so much more in Jesus himself. As we said, he approaches Jerusalem, he sends the two disciples off to get the donkey, and then he rides into Jerusalem, coming in peace, coming with reconciliation. He comes as the humble king. But let's never lose sight of the power in his humility. You see, Jesus coming as the humble king was not a weakness. It was really his strength. You see, it was the same humility with which then he walked all the way to the cross. It was this humility which he talked of and displayed with his disciples in the upper room. It was this in this humility that he prayed, yet not my will, but what you will, when he through his anguish in the garden. It was in this humility that he stood before his accusers in silence. And then when he did speak, it was in humility that he took their punches and their beatings. It was in this humility that he took the soldiers mocking and flogging as they put the crown of thorns on his head as they led him up Calvary's hill. 
It was in humility that he took the weight of sin, our sin upon himself. He, it was in this humility he was separated from his father. He died on the cross in our place. This is Jesus. This is the one and true and only humble king. There are a few places within scripture that we see this more clearly depicted for us than in Philippians 2. This wonder of Jesus, our humble king. And Paul there talks at great lengths about his humility. Let's read just a couple of verses, verses 6 and 7, or 6, 7 and, six, seven and 8, sorry. Paul talking about Jesus says, Who, Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is our humble king. Humility that, that left the glory of heaven to enter creation in order to die on the cross for our sin. This is Jesus, our humble king. And here we see him in Mark 11, riding into Jerusalem, humble and mounted on a donkey. See, as I said earlier, I I think we sometimes wrongly perceive humility to be negative. But as we consider Jesus riding on that donkey into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, let's also recognize that he comes humbly. Yes, that humility is a strength, but he comes as King. King Jesus. And not only do we see that in Zechariah's prophecy, but here in Philippians, we also see it too. Let's continue reading on from verse 9, where we read, so we've talked about Jesus, or Paul has led us through thinking of Jesus and his humility, being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place. So because he was obedient to death, even death on a cross, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see as we celebrate next weekend with all the gusto that we can manage while socially distanced and wearing our masks we will celebrate Jesus humble death because it was not the end of the story. He rose from the dead. He rose victorious from death, defeating sin, defeating death and therefore was exalted to the highest place He's been given the greatest place of honour and worth and value as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. This is Jesus, our humble, yes, but King. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. Jesus is humble. Jesus is King. He rules and reigns. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. And either that knee will bow as his loving follower, or that knee will bow in fear as he brings eternal justice. You see, as we saw earlier, the question of Jesus' identity is still the most important question that can shape your life. Do you know him as king? Not, not just a king that lived once, but your king. And the way we know him as king is to humbly come before him, to express our need of him. You see, as as kings and queens of our own lives, we will never be able to inherit eternal life, as the rich young man asked for. 
the only way to know peace with God, sins forgiven and a spirit empowered life of following Jesus is to humbly come before him and to give our whole lives to him. See, humbly we need to come recognizing that he is the humble king and he is the king, the eternal king the loving king, the saving king, the, the righteous king, the just king, the personal king, the one and only true king. This is the good news of the Easter story. And I pray that you will know this not just as a story, but as your story. Not just a theoretical tale, but actually the life-shaping story of your life that you know our humble King, King Jesus, as your Lord and Saviour. See, Jesus, he is the one who brings life and hope and peace. And I hope that you know him. This is a wonderful time of, our, of the year, of our lives, when we get to recognise again afresh the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, taking the sins that we have upon himself graciously taking and becoming our atoning sacrifice dying in our place not that we deserved it but due to his wonderful overflowing love and so God rich in mercy makes us alive in Christ and so when we choose to put our faith and our trust in him and in his wonderful saving kingly name then we will know sins forgiven life eternal life in all its fullness and his spirit empowering us to live a life of obedient following of him you see, the name of Jesus is what we celebrate at Easter. And because there is so much meaning in that name. And our friend Phil Howe, who was with us in church last summer uh, and brought God's word to us, he has penned a wonderful poem expressing the wonder of Jesus' name. And so let's finish by consider him, considering Jesus, our humble king, as Phil leads us through this poem. You know his name. Of course you do. Who am I talking about? I'll give you a clue. Arguably the most influential person who ever lived on earth. We even talk and question what happened at his birth. In his adulthood he was followed. His fan base had kept growing. In fact it still does and shows no signs of slowing. And though he walked earth years ago, they say he's alive today. That resurrection power means he is here to stay. But who am I talking about? Have you figured it out? For me, he's someone I can't live without. For others, he seems irrelevant. Some think he's not real. Then there are millions like me who think he's kind of a big deal. You know his name. I'm sure you do, even as just a curse. Or you might be more informed of him and can quote him chapter and verse. Others may know his name for being a religious weirdo. Some have no time for him. To them, he's an absolute zero. But what does this guy say about himself to folks like you and me? For the answer to that question, we need to hit a library. If we open the Bible, he's the main aim. We see him as well as lots of descriptions that come into frame. His name, I know you know it. His name is Jesus. Do you know him? Yes, his name is Jesus. But what's the definition? It means God saves. His name gives us his mission. You may think his surname's Christ, that's a usual misunderstanding. But it means he's the anointed one. It's not a surname, it's branding. He's the Messiah, God's promised king. Delivering God's promises is what he would bring. 
They also call him Master, Lord and Teacher, an importer of wisdom and a most excellent preacher. You know his name, I hope you see. All these titles are to help you and to help me. They open our eyes to who he truly is. We don't need enough knowledge to win a quiz. He wants you to know him. That's what he came to show everyone. To tell you, you matter. You're cared for. A loved one. Son of God. Son of man. Those are two more titles to add. Fully God, fully man. Sent to us by his heavenly dad. Did you know he knows your name? He really does care. And this is the God to whom none shall compare. So you know his name, but do you know him? The Bible says, if not, your eternity will be grim. So make the choice now while you still have the time. That's the reason why I share this in rhyme. To get your attention and so you know Jesus. He knows your name. He really does see us. So as you listen, what do you think? Of this message that shows no signs of going extinct? The choice isn't, did Jesus exist? History backs that up. The question is who he was and what he means to us. Actually, we're told he comes back to life, so it shouldn't be who he was, but who he is. So what conclusion do you come to after all your analysis? However you know his name, think of what his names teach us. Hopefully they give us all something worthy to discuss. Jesus is real. You know his name, but remember, he knows yours also. This is the one who I trust, and the one that calls you to follow. Our prayer is that you do know him, that you know him as your Lord and Saviour. And so today, if you have made a decision to, to commit your life to Jesus Christ, then please let us know so that we can help in any way we can. If you've made that decision before and if you are seeking to follow Jesus with your life, then use this wonderful week, this holy week where we reflect again on the sacrifice of Jesus, on everything that he has done for us and in us and what he wants to do through us. As we reflect on this week, then allow him to empower you all the more. Gaze on his wonderful face and allow him to take more of a kingly, more of the kingly throne in your life that he should have. Those areas of our lives that we've sought to take control back in. Let's surrender them once again to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the humble King who brings salvation. Let's behold, for he comes riding humble and mounted on a donkey, and he comes to save. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you, God, for how we see the good news gospel in your word. And Lord, at this wonderful time of year, when we get to intentionally focus once again on the sacrifice that you made, on your power over death, on your rising from the grave, on your saving of our soul, on the offer of forgiveness, Father, we thank you for this time of year and we pray, God, that this would not just be another Easter that we celebrate, but God, you would move mightily in our hearts. Spirit, would you ignite a flame within us that, that, that increases our, our devotion to you, our passion for you, our wonder at the cross. Father, may you help us to know more and more of that resurrection power that is within those of us who follow you and who have trusted in you for our salvation. And Lord, we pray that this Easter time would be again a time when we see folks flooding into your kingdom, receiving you as their Lord and Saviour for the first time. Lord, would you help us, those of us who do know you, uh, to be faithful and bold in our declaring of you, 
to be generous with your good news, to be gentle with it, to be gracious. And Lord, that you would move, you would draw those to yourself. So thank you, Father, for this wonderful time. Thank you, Jesus, that you came as the humble king, that you were willing to leave the the glory of heaven, to enter into our world, to carry our sin, to pay our debt, to rise victorious from the grave, so that we would know forgiveness from sin, we would know life with you. Help us, Father, as we celebrate this week. Help us to know your presence, to know your power, to know your equipping as we seek to live for you. And as we often pray, we ask that all of this is for your glory, for the extension of your kingdom, for your name to be lifted high. And it's in that wonderful name, the mighty, strong name, saving name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.